Let's get started. Um, quick survey. How many of you guys grew up in a clean-your-plate family? Seriously? Yeah, yeah right, 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 right. Um, so this is the type of family where, you know, you do not get up from the table until you've eaten everything on your plate. I actually grew up where um, we not only had to finish our plate, but if it would, took too long, my mom would set a timer on the stove and you had to, you had to finish at a certain time. She felt like you were just dragging your feet, getting into that stubborn, I'll just sit here all night then. She was, then you, it was a timer. And if you didn't get it eaten in time, um, you'd spend the rest of the night in your room, even if there was plenty of daylight left to play with. Um, so uh, I remember racing the clock a few times to, to get down my mom's tamale pie or Brussels sprouts both of which I actually love now, which is weird. But uh, I remember back then it was always uh, a race against the timer on the stove to clear your plate. And can you remember what every single kid or what every single mom, um, uh, and I guess they just all learn it in mom school, but what every single mom um, said to get you to finish your plate? Anybody? Starving kids in Africa, right? Yeah, that we, we were all worried about the starving kids in Africa. If you don't eat your tamale pie, the kids in Africa will starve, which I, I don't understand. But and do moms still do that? I don't know if moms still do that. No, not so much anymore, yeah. Um, uh, but I remember being like a full-grown adult. Um, the very first time I ever like lost a great deal of weight, um, which I've done multiple times, super not healthy the way I do it, but... Um, I was reading this book that had some tips on how to lose weight. And one of them was um, uh, that it, it was teaching you that you do not have to clear your plate. And I remember being offended by that. I remember as a full-grown, rational adult going, but what about the starving kids in Africa? Like, like that you, you have to eat your plate. And, and the, the advice was simple. It was like, um, hey, if you've had enough, it's just as wasted in your stomach as it is in the trash. Like, you're still wasting food. I remember like, how can I be this old? And that blows my mind. But believe it or not, um, those, those poor kids in Africa have kind of shaped um, my life in more ways than I like to admit, um, which is a little bit of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, this is week two of Advent, um, as Jess and Matt and the kids lit the peace candle um, uh, just a little bit ago. We set in motion a week of meditation and contemplation on this idea of peace. And I have to be honest, this is the toughest week of Advent for me every year. Hope, joy, and love, like I get those. Those seem to be things that we can discipline ourselves to do. Um, hope is scary, but I know how to engage hope. Um, and though it often feels like a gamble, I do know how to hope. Um, joy kind of sneaks up on us at times. It's one of those things that you know we experience and we love it, and, and we can choose to be more joyful. We can choose to be more Upbeat. And we all know that love is an action. That's something we're used to in church, that love is something you do. And so those three feel like disciplines we can choose. Peace is complicated. Peace is a whole different thing. Um, it, it, how do you muster up peace? Like how do, you, how do you make peace? It's hard because it, 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 have you ever tried to tell somebody who's having an anxiety attack to calm down? Like, yeah, it does like the opposite. I'm trying to calm down. Like, freaks them out. Second, when it comes to relational peace or even national peace, there's two parties involved. And you only have so much control of the peace. And so peace is a tough one. Challenging people to go out and make peace is difficult. So, um, so Peace Week's always been a challenge for me because I can tend to feel like I'm making us less peaceful as I tell you to go out and be peaceful. Like now you're, now you're going out going, oh, brother, now I've got to find a way to calm down and be peaceful. And it, 
And it robs our peace to try really hard to be peaceful. So Peace Week's always been a challenge. Um, so instead, what I thought I would do this morning is, instead of telling you to go out and make peace, we're just going to sit um, in awkward silence for the rest of the sermon time. No, I'm kidding. Can you imagine how little peace that would create? No. I do intend to do that someday, like when I forget to write a sermon. We're just going to do it as a discipline and pretend like I planned it. But not today. Um, now, in this series, uh, we're looking at some passages from the Psalms, from the aspect of art. Um, when these poems and songs were originally written, the fact that they were scripture was probably um, a complete surprise to the authors. I doubt they had any idea. They, they probably didn't wake up in the morning and go, I'm going to go write some Bible today, I think is what I'm going to do. Um, no, I think they were um, just reacting to God, and they were they were created to, to create. They had this um, kind of creative nature, um, and I believe God made them this way. And and so I think the psalmists were just living a life of service to God, and and that inspired them to express this relationship through um, their songwriting. And so we're looking at their art uh, in this series um, that way. Um, last week, the lectionary gave us Psalms 80 where we found kind of a very recognizable three-verse song pattern with a chorus in between each song um, that like starts out great, awesome, God is amazing, we love what he's doing. And then it dives into this like gut-wrenchingly honest verse about how bad everything is and God, we're just falling apart, uh, and then reveals the kind of true nature of hope as it looks into the future and even more into our offspring and the, the child, the, the children, the offspring that God has chosen um, uh, as the kind of the true hope for God making a real difference in the world. Um, well, this week's uh, kind of biblical piece of art comes from Psalms 85, and it reads like this. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. Lord, you poured out blessings on our land. You restored the fortunes of Israel. You gave... Uh, You forgave the guilt of your people. Yes, you covered all their sins. Interlude. Selah. You held back your fury. You kept back your blazing anger. Now restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. Will you be angry with us always? Will you prolong your wrath to all generations? Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he's speaking to his faithful people. But let them not return to their foolish ways. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. For our land, so our land will be filled with his glory. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the earth and righteousness smiles down from the heavens. Yes, the Lord pours down his blessing. Our land will yield a bountiful harvest. Righteousness goes as a herald before him, preparing the way for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this psalm uh, is a little different than Psalms 80 uh, that we studied last week. This psalm doesn't have the repeating refrain to kind of break it up and separate it into different parts uh, like Psalms 80 did. Psalms 85 is, is more like an old hymn that doesn't really have a chorus. It just has repeating verses. You know how those kind of work, um, kind of like we sang uh, today, Oh, come all ye faithful. Well, that has a chorus in it, I guess, sort of. Um, so this is, this is closer to the old hymns that just had verses. And, uh, and verse 1 is pretty obvious because it ends with kind of a musical interlude, um, a, a, a down space, a, a selah. 
Uh, it reads, Lord, you poured out blessings on your land. You restored the fortunes of Israel. You forgave the guilt of your people. Yes, you covered all of their sins. So this, this Selah in Hebrew um, would have most likely been a, a break from singing with just the instruments playing. Um, and it gives us kind of a clean break between verse 1 and verse 2. We know that there was a pause um, there. And this is a beautiful verse. It's victorious. This is the goal, right? The blessings um, of God, that the restoration, the forgiveness of sins. This is kind of the whole enchilada. So right here in verse uh, 1 of this song, we recognize this is a song of celebration, right? This is a song that, that you sing when everything is good. You have nothing to complain about. You're on the mountaintop until you get to verse 2, and then everything kind of changes. Verse 2, you, hold, you, you held back your fury, you kept your blazing anger. Now restore us again, O God, of our salvation. Put aside your anger against us once more. Will you be angry always? Will you prolong your wrath to all generations? Won't you revive us so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O, God, o Lord. Grant us your salvation. So in my opinion, this is the human condition. This is these first two verses side by side. Um, of this old, old song um, is what it means to be human. The, this, is, this is also what makes peace really, really hard to talk about. So listen again. Lord, you poured out your blessings on our land. You restored our fortunes. You forgave our guilt. You covered all of our sins. Now restore us again, O God. Put aside your anger toward us. Will you be angry always? Will you... Not will you prolong your wrath for all generations? Won't you revive us so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love. Grant us your salvation. Can you feel the contradiction in the two verses? So you got one, you know, you poured out your blessings on our land. In verse 2, why are you so angry with us? In verse 1, you restored our good fortune of your people. In verse 2, will you prolong your wrath forever to all generations? It's like this person feels completely and totally blessed and completely and totally frustrated and dissatisfied all at the same time. Does that sound familiar to anybody at all? Like, and I really think this is the human condition, or at least the Christian condition, to know that we are unbelievably blessed. We have our sins forgiven because of Jesus' work on the cross. We know heaven is our eternal destination. And if that's not enough, we're born in a land with freedoms, and, and which include the freedom to worship in community, which by worldwide standards... Everyone in this room is richer than 80% of the planet. If, and if you go off of amenities and not just income, if you have a car, at least one TV, and air conditioning, you're richer than 95% of the planet. We are so unbelievably blessed. I mean, there's nothing to do for us other than walk around singing zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. I mean, we have it so good. In the face of such blessing, what else could we do but drift around on clouds all day knowing the entire universe is at peace? But, but, somehow we still struggle. We still suffer pain. We still feel anxiety and, and we fret over the future. We, we still look at our world and, and know that nothing is right. We're never quite satisfied with our role in it. I know I've said this a thousand times, but I love the Psalms because of their honesty. The songwriter of Psalms 85 recognizes the blessing. He's not being ungrateful. The psalmist isn't denying that God has been good, incredibly, ridiculously good. 
The artist doesn't want to be ungrateful. But there's also verse 2. And tell me you haven't struggled with this. Tell me you haven't gotten stuck somewhere between gratitude and desperation. And you know what doesn't help? The starving kids in Africa. That really doesn't make it any better. Like, we think it does. Like, if I just, man, I've got it so good compared to the starving kids in Africa. Believe it or not, I've spent like 11 years of my marriage, uh, the first 11 years, um, trying not to live in Psalms 85. I, Esther would get dissatisfied with something we didn't have, something that, that would have basically been considered a necessity to most of the developed world. And I would actually, like when she would be upset that we didn't have something, I would give her the, do you know how blessed you are speech. Like, do you, okay, Judy. <laughs> oh, I thought that was you that just scoffed at me. <laughs> yeah, I'd give her the, what about those starving kids in Africa speech? Like some guy that never, ever wants to have sex again. I actually said those things. <laughs> I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. There are people in Africa that would be happy to have a roof over their head and you're complaining about a dishwasher. I was smooth. And guess what? Adding guilt to dissatisfaction doesn't make the dissatisfaction go away, believe it or not. Big shocker. What I was too immature to realize was something the songwriter of the Psalms completely understood which is that just because you recognize how bad things are doesn't mean you don't recognize how good things are. That it is possible to recognize how bad things are and still see how good things are. And this is what makes peace hard to preach about because how can peace exist in that environment? How do you feel incredibly blessed and in desperate need at the same time without tearing your heart in half. If you've been here very long, you know I love the word tension. I actually fear easy answers, mostly because they haven't done me much good in my life. Because to believe them, I kind of got to put on really thick blinders, which I don't like. Theologically, there's a very small number of things that I'm like hardcore, passionate, die on a hill you know, convinced of. That may be discouraging to hear from your pastor that I just, there's really a small number of things I believe wholeheartedly. A much greater number of things I'm convinced of by the weight of Scripture and, and, and reason. But if I'm honest, the other side has some good arguments. And I'm not willing to throw on blinders so thick that I can't see that. And so we, we live in this tension. The only way I could call most people that I disagree with stupid or uneducated or or ignorant is if I choose not to look. I choose to keep the blinders on. I don't like doing that. So so I believe we're supposed to live in this tension. We're supposed to believe and, and live and survive in the tension between really good points. And the only way we can do that is seems to be to sacrifice peace. To live in, in the discomfort of, of what if and and the Psalms reveals one of those tensions. We sing about how good God is. We do it all the time. We, we, we'll come in here and we'll sing about how good and how amazing God is. We'll sing worship songs for 30 minutes and, and feel uplifted and, and we rejoice. 
And then we walk out of here and wonder why God never answers my prayers. We gather around a meal. We do this as Americans. We gather around a meal designed to talk about how thankful we are. Then we go to Walmart and trample our neighbor for the best price on a TV. We live in both. We, we live in this tension. The psalmist speaks right into that tension. And the song used a, a musical pause to, to divide the tension. We've got one psalm. God, you've been so good. You're so amazing. And then you pause and you go, well, why are you so angry with us? And, and that's where we live. The second division into the third verse of the song, he uses the lyrics to shift instead of the musical interlude. He says, I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. But don't let them return to their foolish ways. I love this. The song writer shifts from, from it, the song coming from the speaker crying out in the mental and emotional war that happens between gratitude and desire to God being the speaker. And now the song has shifted and God is speaking down from heaven. I stopped talking and I listened carefully to what God was saying. And this is where the song changes. It says, I listened carefully to what God the Lord is saying. He speaks peace to his faithful people. But let them not return to their foolish ways. Surely his salvation is near for those who fear him. For our land will be filled with his glory. I love this because in a general sense, the psalmist um, tells us what the song is about. It's about God speaking peace. He speaks peace to his faithful people. And the reason God is speaking into this moment isn't to add stress. It's not to challenge or convict or confront. God is speaking peace to his people. Now granted, when God speaks peace, it's not the kind of peace that the world speaks. It's not just calm down. Just relax. It's not that kind. It's not just go about your foolish ways. It's not mind your own business, live and let live. It's not that kind of peace. This is the kind of peace the world offers. You do you, I'll do me. We'll just leave each other alone. And, and we call that peace. In the Psalms, God simultaneously speaks peace, and he's real enough to say if you want peace, you can't walk around acting foolishly. This is hard. But peace isn't the absence of confrontation. God, as he speaks peace to his people, he, he says, but you have to stop going your foolish ways. But then the psalmist describes what happens when God does speak peace to his people. And it's interesting. He says, unfailing love and truth have met. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the earth and righteousness spiles down from heaven. So this psalmist picture of what it looks like when God speaks peace to his people. I love these phrases because they're innocuous and at first, like a bunch of Christianese, right? Truth, love, righteousness, peace, words that we're so familiar and comfortable with. This can be nothing but good, right? These are good things. But think for a second about how these fit together. Unfailing love and truth have met together. Always a good thing. Quick quiz, though. Have you ever felt that distinct lack of peace when you're hanging out with a fellow Christian and they're like, all that really matters is the love of Jesus. It's all about love. God is love. Loving people is the only thing that really matters. Have you ever heard that and thought, well, there's some other things that matter. Like, there's a lot of Bible that kind of matters. 
we hear that it's all about love. And what we, what we interpret is truth doesn't really matter. It's all love. Or if you're not that person, if you've never really experienced that, have you ever felt that discomfort when, when a, another Christian goes, the biggest problem we have is that nobody respects peace anymore or, or expects truth anymore. Nobody, nobody really, you know, stands for the truth anymore. And the first thing you think is he's not a very loving person. Usually, even though they sound like they go together, truth and love don't hang out together much. In my experience, they don't coexist. People generally either really stress the truth or they really stress love. You don't often see those two hanging out together. When the psalmist says that uh, truth and love have met together, this isn't just a simple statement. But it doesn't stop there. It says righteousness and peace have kissed. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Have you ever tried to stand for what is right? Take a stand for righteousness. Did it bring a lot of peace into your life? Or maybe you know somebody that's living unrighteousness. They're, they're, they're living however they want. They're hurting themselves. They're offending God. They're living however you want. And you decide to just keep the peace. You know what? You do you. Did they grow more righteous as you did that? Not usually. Usually it's peace or righteousness. You don't usually get both. Peace and righteousness don't usually flow together. Usually we either keep the peace or we call out righteousness. We don't do both. So let's track back to what the psalmist is doing so far. Verse 1, you poured out your blessing. You restored our fortune. You forgave our guilt. You covered our sins. We are so blessed. But why are you so angry? Are you going to be mad forever? Send us revival. Save us. I'm stuck somewhere between feeling blessed and feeling desperate in need. Then, then, then I listened to what the Lord was saying. I think this is a key word. Then I listened. If I'm reading this right, this cognitive dissonance between verse 1 and verse 2 is, be, is what happened before he listened to heaven. So I'm stuck in this tension between, between feeling blessed and feeling like I have nothing. And so what I decided to do in this tension was listen to heaven. Then I listened to the Lord God. And it's not until the psalmist stops to hear from God that this perceived dualism is finally silenced when things that seem to be opposites are found to fit together quite well. Love and truth, meet, righteousness and peace, kiss. I feel blessed and I ask God for the things I need all at the same time. And this is what it means for God to speak peace to his people. These things are not contradictions. They're supposed to all be there. I listen carefully to what God the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. I think this would be more obvious to a Jew. I think, I think somebody who spoke Hebrew and, and listened to this psalm in Hebrew, it would have made more sense. Because this word peace in Hebrew is shalom. We hear that quite a bit. We're familiar with that word, shalom. Which in Hebrew is a much more nuanced word than the word peace in English. Shalom in the scripture is sometimes translated safe. Sometimes it's translated prosperous. Sometimes it's translated 
healthy or restful. This is a, this is a very big word. Other than the word peace, though, the, the, the word that is translated most as is whole or complete. So there are times when, when, when someone is healed and it says uh, they're made shalom. They're made whole. Jesus often says uh, when he heals somebody, be at peace. Your faith has healed you. Be at shalom. Be at wholeness. Be at completeness. Not just calm down. Not just go zen, you know, do some yoga, mellow out. No, it's be whole, be one. So when the psalmist says that God is speaking peace to his people, it's not saying that God is telling them to zen out. He's saying he's calling us to wholeness. He's calling us to completeness. He's calling us to fullness. The psalmist paints a picture with words that that says, I was tearing myself apart, caught between these warring factions in my heart. I want love, but I also want to stand for truth. I, I want peace, but I also want to call out righteousness. I want to be grateful I also want to bring my heart's desires to the Lord. And in that tension, God speaks wholeness. Yes, love your neighbor, but also love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. Yes, as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. Blessed are the peacemakers. But also seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this will be given to you. Yes, rejoice always. Praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances, but also ask and seek and knock. For those that ask are answered, those who seek, find, those who knock, it's open to them. Peace is not about having a quiet soul. I wish it was. When Jesus revealed himself to, to two disciples that didn't recognize him, and he was, he was explaining the scripture to them before they even knew what he was, once he did reveal himself, They said, didn't we have a fire burning in our souls as he spoke with us? Peace isn't always quietness, it's wholeness. And this sounds great, but who can live like that, right? Who can achieve that kind of shalom, that kind of wholeness, where we can hold the tension between all these things? And we all know the answer to that question. Because we celebrate his coming during this season. One day Jesus was teaching some, some people, a group of people, and the Pharisees decided to put him on the spot. In fact, the scripture says they were laying a trap for him. And they had this woman who had surprisingly, or supposedly been caught in the act of adultery. And when Jesus taught, he taught about love and he taught about peace. And, he, and they knew this about him, and, and so they... They knew that there's no way he would stand for truth and righteousness. If we can put this woman in front of him and in front of the crowd, if we can drag her out in front of all these people, Jesus will either have to abandon the truth, because the scripture said she was supposed to be stoned. He would either have to abandon the truth or he would have to abandon his loving, peaceful style. They were determined to prove that Jesus lacked shalom. He lacked wholeness. So they brought the woman to Jesus and and told him where they had found the woman. She was caught in the act of adultery. They reminded him that Torah said she should be stoned to death. And Jesus knelt down and doodled in the earth, in the dirt. 
We don't know what he wrote, but what if it was Deuteronomy 22.22? If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die, and this way we'll purge the evil from Israel. What if he just doodled Deuteronomy 22.22? Jesus stands back up and he says, whoever is with, without sin cast the first stone, and he squats down again and doodles some more. He draws... Again, we don't know what he said, but what if it was Deuteronomy 17.7 where the Torah outlines exactly how somebody is supposed to be put to death if they're caught in a wicked sin. And it says, only the eyewitnesses are allowed to cast the first stone. Deuteronomy 17.7 says. Only the eyewitnesses are allowed to cast the first stone. Jesus said, whoever is innocent of sin, cast the first stone. Maybe he's calling them back to Deuteronomy 17.7. Once the eyewitnesses throw their stones, everybody else can join in. But it's got to be an eyewitness that throws the first one. I know I'm doing a lot of speculating here, but what if the second Jesus saw this woman alone, he knew none of these Pharisees caught her? Because if so, the man would be here too. And with no eyewitness, there would be no stoning. All we do know is that the woman's accusers walked away. And she stayed, frozen in this moment, in front of all these people, face to face with Jesus. And Jesus stood back up and, and looked at the woman. What must his eyes have looked like in that moment, staring into her soul? And Jesus asked her where her accusers went, and all she knows is they're gone. And Jesus speaks those beautiful and chilling words, go and sin no more. And in that moment, she knows and we know that even though there were no eyewitnesses that were there that day to stone her, she knows she's guilty. Jesus knows she's guilty. And with one word, he changes everything. He says, go, go. And this is grace. This is love. Because when that woman walked out in front of that crowd, there was no go. This was the end. This was the last page of the story. She knew there was no future. There is no more writing to be done. I'm going to be stoned. That's what I'm heading to. And with one word, Jesus changes that. Go. That's, a, that's, a, that's sending her into the future. There's more story to tell. There's more pages to write on. The book is not over yet. Go. But it's not just more story. It's a better story. Sin no more. He told her, sin no more. Had she considered this option? Had she ever thought that there might be a future that could change? That she could, she, there could be something better. She walked up to Jesus assuming there were no more pages in the book and now she's not only given more books, she's allowed to write a better ending. Go and sin no more. This is what peace looks like. This is what shalom, wholeness looks like. Jesus not only stands for the truth, he's probably more adherent to the Torah in that moment than the Pharisees are. You need eyewitnesses. Where's the man? He's, he's calling out a truth that they weren't even standing for. 
love and truth are meeting because he's also not only scares off this woman's captors, but he doesn't condemn her either. Even though he knows he could. Jesus not only stands as the blessed peacemaker who publicly diffuses a moment destined for bloodshed, but peace and righteousness kiss as he warns this woman to abandon sin and change her future. If you want to know what peace looks like, you have to look to Jesus. Jesus, when he slept through a storm and then calmed that storm by telling it to be still. And Jesus, when he's overturning a table and cracking whips because somebody had taken the shalom out of his father's house. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We can only find peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness in him. There is no other place to find it. So how do we respond to this? Um, I've mostly been preaching to myself in this message. Hi, my name is Chris and I'm a hypocrite. I often um, preach stuff that I'm terrible at. It's kind of the nature of the job. Uh, I've been trying hard over the past several years to kind of make Advent a Zen thing, like this, this really quiet time this uh, totally peaceful in the English sense of the word thing. And though I don't think it's uh, helpful whenever, uh, or I do think it's helpful whenever we can get it, you know, to be, be at peace, be calm, be quiet, have some rest. Psalms 85 helped remind me that peace is bigger than just quiet. Peace is, the goal is wholeness. Peace is, is about being whole. As I said earlier, I love the word tension, but in writing this sermon, I think that may not be accurate. I, I think what I actually love is shalom. I think I love wholeness. I think I love, uh, and sometimes it feels like tension because we're holding things that don't feel like they go together and we're insisting they stay together. I don't want to have to choose between love and truth. I don't want to have to choose between peace or righteousness. I want both. I want, I want wholeness. I want Jesus. So we're calling this series Created to Create, and I came up with the title because we're not only looking at psalms as a, as a work of creativity, but we're trying to figure out how to create Advent in our world, how to, how to ex- not only experience the Advent virtues, but create them. We don't just want more hope in our hearts. We, we want to create a world worth hoping in. And this week, we don't just want to find peace. We want to create peace. And so this is where it gets fun. Are you ready to get mad at me? If shalom is wholeness, to create shalom, you need to create more wholeness in your world. And the way we do that is by examining your nature, what comes naturally to you, and then do the opposite. Draw in some tension if you find it easy to stand for truth, to stand for what, what is, you need to find someone that you know is dead wrong and smother them with love. Do it. Remember, the goal is wholeness. The goal is to not just hold truth, but hold love also. If you find the love part of our faith community is appealing, and you love that Jesus accepted, accepted people of all races and genders and backgrounds, 
Or maybe you don't spend a lot of personal time in the Bible. Maybe for the rest of Advent, grab a book or two of the Bible and dig in. Just dive into truth. Decide over the next month, I'm going to read more than I have in a long time. I'm going to be in the Scripture. Grab an audio Bible. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to dig into truth. Love comes easy to me. What I don't do so much of is the truth part. Dig into that. If you draw toward righteousness, if you find rules and boundaries of Christianity appealing, then go out and sin big time. No, I'm kidding. Don't, don't do that. No, 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 no. Totally kidding. Don't, don't quote me. <laughs> do not do that. I'm kidding. But if you find yourself standing for what's right all the time, Find somebody you're in a fight with and make peace. Just go, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to fight. I, I want to love you as a person. I want to make peace. I honestly live a lot of my life this way. I'm mostly a pacifist, and it's not because I'm peaceful as a person. I love fighting. I love I love verbally fighting and arguing and debating with people that I love, and I love punching people that I don't love. And sometimes I like punching the people I love. My sons and I used to have a fight club, and we just got together and fought and beat each other up. I'm not a pacifist because I'm peaceful by nature. I'm a pacifist because I'm violent. And I know that Jesus isn't. And so I have to defy my nature and be more like Jesus. Because that's what wholeness looks like. The, the fight comes easy to me. What doesn't come easy to me is peace. And so I, I have to dig into the peace because the, I know the fight will always be there. If I want to fight, it will always be there. That's easy. Peace is not easy. I have to pursue it. Sometimes I think we've spent so much time in Christianity, stressing our strengths and finding your gifts and finding how you fit into the body that, that we've kind of translated that into, do what comes naturally to you. Do what's easy. But we're called to shalom, to wholeness. So go out this week and do something out of character for you. And experience just a tiny taste of what it might look like to be whole, to have both sides. So that's the first way I'd love to respond to this message. Go out, analyze what you do naturally and, and just imagine that, that although those things aren't wrong, I'm not saying those things are bad and deny them. I'm saying that's not complete. What's the other side look like? That's not the only way to follow Jesus. Dig into the stuff that doesn't come naturally. Dig into the stuff that's a little harder. Secondly, wholeness is way more than just a, having a holistic way of advancing the kingdom and serving Jesus. Wholeness is more than just being loving and standing for truth, being peaceful and calling out righteousness. Wholeness is the longing of the human heart, and it's the goal of community. I personally think on this side of eternity, real shalom only happens in community. It only happens together. Real wholeness happens when a bunch of broken people come together and make a body. None of us will achieve true wholeness in ourselves. As much as my goal is to hold the tension between all the differing and complex approaches to Scripture and life and reaching the lost, I know I can't. I need, I need you guys. I need other broken people to cover my weaknesses, to be strong where I'm not. 
Your strength covers the things that I'm weak in. And hopefully my strengths help you. There's a reason that Paul referred to the church as the body of Christ. There's not a single one of us that can fully represent him alone. We're all jacked up. Can't overstate the importance of community, especially in times like this. I believe isolation is dangerous, actually dangerous to the soul. Which is why the the Hebrew definition for shalom is so important. Most of us try to get alone to get peace. Like lock yourself in the bathroom or something just to get a little peace. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we have to get together with people to find shalom. That's different. You get alone to find peace. You get together to find shalom, to find wholeness. Right now, I don't think we can afford to be alone. And I'm not suggesting we get stupid and ignore warnings and and abandon wisdom just to be with people. If you can't or shouldn't leave your house, that's not a problem. But but lean into every available opportunity, technology or whatever, to connect with people. Make a good old-fashioned phone call. You guys remember phone calls? We used to call people on the phone and talk to a real human voice. Make a phone call. Do something to connect with a real human because I don't think we can find shalom without it. But not only do you need to be in community, you need to be yourself in community. That's super important. I don't think shalom, wholeness can happen when we're fake. I just don't think it works. We have to be authentic. It's not always pretty, but we have to be authentic. And we have to allow others to be authentic. And I think this is kind of the superpower of the church. A bunch of broken people gathering around a common teaching and a common table to find wholeness. Let's go to the table.